BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Press Pod this Wednesday morning, November 24, about 8.30 a.m. in our nation's capital for this week's Reporters Roundtable, early one this week, so as not to interfere with your Thanksgiving celebration. In the news so far this week, the nation jolted by the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, not guilty on all five counts, raising serious questions about what qualifies under the law as self-defense. Roger Stone and Alex Jones are among the latest to get congressional subpoenas to testify about events leading up to the insurrection of January 6th. Will they pull a Steve Bannon? With inflation looming, President Biden decides not to rock the boat and stick with a man Donald Trump named to head the Fed. But the man Trump endorsed for Senate in Pennsylvania didn't fare so well this week. After losing custody of his kids, Sean Parnell dropped out of the race. All that and more on the docket for today's panel. So let's jump right in with Maya King covering national politics for Politico. Hi, Maya. Hi, Bill. Hunter Walker, founder of the Uprising.info, and also doing some great reporting for Rolling Stone. Welcome back, Hunter. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, joining us for the first time on our Bill Press Pod Roundtable, Elena Treen, congressional reporter for Axios. Hello, Elena, and welcome. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Great. Well, I uh, always like to start with the breaking news, and the breaking news uh, by one of our own, Hunter Walker, overnight with some news about the organizers of the January 6th rally on the Ellipse and using burner phones to uh, keep in touch with the White House. Hunter, tell us about it. So three different sources confirmed to me that uh, Kylie Kramer, who was one of the leaders of both March for Trump and Women for America First, uh, these two organizations that were behind this bus tour, this nationwide bus tour challenging the election, which culminated in the big January 6th rally on the ellipse. Um, So these sources told me that she directed an aide near the beginning of the bus tour to purchase three, quote, burner phones. Um, One went to her, one went to her mother. It's not clear where the third went. Um, And a member of the March for Trump team told me that she claimed she needed to use them for, quote, high-level conversations, including with Mark Meadows, Eric Trump, uh, Laura Trump, and Katrina Pearson from the Trump campaign. Um, So, you know, this is an allegation that, you know, Uh, they were directly in touch and also that they took steps to conceal those communications because the source also told me um, that she said it was, quote, of the utmost importance to use cash for that purpose and made that really specific. Well, was there any connection, uh, was there any link to uh, talking about the, what happened after the rally uh, at the Ellipse? So I I didn't, you know, learn about that vis-a-vis these burner phones. I think, you know, some of my sources were familiar with the purchase, but obviously, you know, uh, one one March for Trump team member described a bit to me of how the phones were used. But, you know, they were with Amy and Kylie Kramer, the leader, uh, the leaders of this group. Um, But I have heard a little bit about the Kramer's reaction to January 6th, because in a prior story for Rolling Stone, um, I had obtained some group texts that um, included conversations with the Kramers and other March for Trump planners. Um, And actually, in the aftermath of the rally, um, you know, as Trump supporters uh, were still battling with the National Guard on the Capitol, um, Amy Kramer was texting other people from her luxury suite at the Willard. trying to plan dinner um, and ordering a charcuterie plate, um, you know, for hors d'oeuvres in the meantime. Um, And from all accounts, I hear they were, you know, drinking in the suite that day and having sort of pretty good time. Um, The morning after, you know, she was very adamant to the other organizers that she didn't want to issue um, a statement and thought this press release they did was enough. 
Well, um, so, um, Elena, this gets to the, uh, I, I, by the way, Hunter, that, that image of sort of uh, drinking champagne while the Capitol was burning, right, is pretty, uh, pretty impressive. And that I heard on record when I called this woman from, I had obtained a VIP list from the Ellipse Rally, and I called this woman from the Napa California Tea Party, um, who said Amy Kramer was one of her best friends, and almost as a defense, um, you know, to what happened that day, when I asked her, you know, what she did, she said, well, I didn't go over there. I I chose to stay at the Willard and drink champagne instead. Instead, yeah. So, Elena, this gets to the work of the... uh a special select committee on January 6th, which came out with a couple of uh, additional subpoenas earlier, a couple of days ago, and then more even yesterday. Uh, has their work picked up? Uh, what's the what's the latest there? Uh, yes, it is picking up. And I think one of the key things that I know that I'm looking for, and I'm sure uh, Hunter and Meyer are also paying attention to, is, you know, if a lot of these individuals who are being subpoenaed to come forth and and give testimony before the committee don't comply with the subpoena. We've seen, you know, of course, Steve Bannon um, was indicted. And and that was almost, um, as Adam Schiff put it, one of the members on the panel, um, you know, almost kind of a test case for what might come for others who don't comply. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, though, the, the big question now is how how they're going to deal with those others. Someone like Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, to then President Trump, um, he's already shown that he has no interest in complying with the subpoena. And um, I think the big question is, is will they you know, move to hold him in contempt as well? So this is one of the key things that I think we're paying attention to. But we have seen them issue more subpoenas, like you said, in the last several days. Um, and from my conversations with those who are on the panel and behind the scenes working for the committee, um, they're hoping to ramp some of this stuff up quickly and, and get public hearings, um, you know, on the book soon. Right. So, um, Maya, the the is subpoenas issued this week went to, among other individuals, Roger Stone, who was in Washington, uh, was seen at the Willard as part of that war room. Uh, same with Alex Jones, talk show host and conspiracy theorist, uh, part of the planning, it seems, uh, for the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But then yesterday, the committee issued subpoenas to a couple of the the organizations, uh, organizers, including the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Um, I mean, this this is fairly significant, right? Getting right to the heart of the matter of the people who um, put this rally together. I mean, not the rally, but the attack on the Capitol with it looks like intent for violence. Absolutely. And it sends a message, too, of of just how seriously, of course, Democrats are taking this. But I think, you know, what's been lost in some of this is just what uh, these these organizations, these groups really intended to do and what they could still do um, as they continue to form and recruit new members. One thing that sticks out to me in all of this is the fact that the leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, is in jail right now for burning a Black Lives Matter flag. Mm. So, I mean, there's there's that was that was stolen from a church in DC. So like these are groups um and I think that's what this I think that's what this panel is trying to to make clear on top of of course trying to get to the bottom of what exactly happened on January 6th what the president and those or excuse me the former president and those in his his orbit were doing that day. Also the fact that these organizations are indeed extremely dangerous um and that really what they planned was was an attack, or that's exactly what took place on January 6th, but they could be capable, I think, of doing even more damage. Um, and so we'll see exactly, I, I think Elena's right, like what exactly they do and whether they comply, you know, with these subpoenas will, of course, set a precedent moving forward. But even so, just seeing the fact that uh, this is going to require Congress to gather more information about them and what really what their motives were and kind of how well organized these groups are, that's going to send a message too. Uh, Elena, let me ask you again. You you indicated there about the timetable. Uh, have they set? Has the committee set itself a timetable to complete their investigation and issue its report? Uh, I'd say sort of. Bill, they they oh. had initially <laughs> wanted this to wrap up um, before the midterms, and 
Um, of course, Republicans are really pushing for that. But it is, you know, from my conversations with with folks in the committee, and um, it it seems like they're now, you know, leaning toward this is going to take a lot of time. It, it, these investigations um, take a lot of time, particularly when you have people who are failing to comply with subpoenas and you know different enforcement measures need to be taken. And so now they're saying we're going to see how long it takes. And and it, there have been indications, particularly for some of the Democratic members on the committee, that it may you know stretch beyond that initial hope for this to wrap up by the you know November of 2022. But um, that has been the goal. We'll see, you know, I, I think it's really going to depend on and how quickly they're able to get some of these um, members that they're trying to come and testify to, to do so. And of course, as others have pointed out, um, depending on what happens in the midterms, so the committee may uh, uh, disappear anyhow if Republicans were to take over the House. Hunter, you're in touch with people from some of these groups. When you add to what we've just been talking about with the fact that yesterday uh, a jury in Charlottesville slapped $25 million uh, in fines on leaders of these right-wing paramilitary organizations. Um, is is this sending sort of a, a chilling note among these groups and may uh, impact uh, future plans? I mean, I know of, you know, multiple people who were tangentially involved with either the planning of January 6th events um, or, you know, at the White House at the time. And they are definitely, definitely worried um, about subpoenas. That being said, um, and, you know, I think that's particularly true for folks who, um, you know, as Elena noted, there's this sort of wall of executive privilege that might cover folks like uh, Trump, Mark Meadows, Bannon, of former advisors trying to get it. But there are people who clearly don't fit under that umbrella and, and they're nervous. Um, but I think it's worth pointing out, you know, this is a congressional investigation. Um, so they really don't have criminal authority. What they did in the case of Steve Bannon was they made a criminal contempt referral um, for his um, defiance of the subpoena. These contempt charges, which apparently Merrick Garland is absolutely willing to, you know, sort of put teeth on, um, mean, I think, a thousand dollar fine and up to a year in jail. Uh, so that's that is that is you know pretty serious for people, but I think you know the big question you know as the information I'm starting to learn about this you know makes me think uh, that we're going to have a pretty explosive report. The big question is whether uh, Merrick Garland and the FBI investigation move beyond the people who were sort of inside the Capitol uh, that day and start as the um, congressional committee is doing, looking at the organizational elements. Right. Uh, by the way, there are some members of Congress who hold that Congress does have its own uh, criminal justice enforcement mechanism, although that hasn't been used maybe in a century or so. And uh, they don't seem likely to go down that go down yeah, that I, route. I, I think the committee is solely thinking in terms of referrals. Right. Uh, well, while we're in the <laughs> general law and order area, <laughs> uh, Monday, the big shocker from Kenosha, Wisconsin, with the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, here is the head of the jury uh, announcing their decision. Did the jury find the defendant Kyle H. Rittenhouse not guilty? As to the second count of the information, Richard McGinnis, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. So, Maya, um, not perhaps uh, unexpected, uh, but still pretty stunning and had quite an impact nationwide. And it sets just a really, really scary, dangerous precedent around what people are able to do, uh, especially as it relates to responses to public protests. This establishes a, a precedent that says, if you feel like your life is in danger, you can claim self-defense uh, and be able to, if you can claim self-defense, you, you could possibly uh, be able to shoot and kill some people, multiple people, at a protest or at a public uh, at a public gathering, um, and and be able to not face criminal charges for that. I mean, that's what folks have really pointed out to me and, and hammered home is that this blanket of self defense allows for uh, putting it, I think, maybe too lightly, bad behavior. 
And it's even more stunning when you look at just the events in Wisconsin over the last 18 months, um, particularly as it relates to Jacob Blake's shooting by police. Of course, he survived. There were a lot of protests around that. Um, and there are folks right now, activists and organizers, who are, who are in jail currently, um, not just around those protests, but others um, just across, across the country uh, as it relates to um, the, basically them standing up uh, and saying, you know, this is not something that we'll stand for, but have been tied to looting, destruction of property and others. Though it, it just feels, I, I think, to them, and this is how they've how, how many organizers have put it to me, uh, like there is really an uneven uh, application of of justice in this situation. So it's it's definitely, I think, to many, it's not surprising, but yes, it's absolutely stunning, and it's it's very frightening as well. Well, not everybody, of course, uh, reacted uh, with the same har- uh, amount of horror. Uh, Elena, at least three members of Congress that I have seen uh, have openly talked. That's Matt Gates and Madison Cawthorn and Lauren Bobbert have openly talked about offering uh, Kyle Rittenhouse a job as a congressional intern. Wow. Seriously, I guess is my question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it highlights the, the different reactions we've had from, as you said, members of Congress, um, as well as, you know, just people across the country. I think it highlights just how polarizing um, some of an issue like this is. And um, we've seen now, you know, even someone like former President Trump, he said that uh, he told Fox News's Sean Hannity um, yesterday that Kyle Rittenhouse visited him at Mar-a-Lago after he was found um, not guilty. And, and he has kind of been, you know, I don't want to say championed. I don't know if that's the right word, but he has, you know, a lot of supporters from, from those who, um, support the former president and, and people on the right, um, who have been you know, pushing for him to be found not guilty on these charges. And so, um, I, like I said, I think it just highlights the divide in our country right now um, around an issue like this and, and, you know, whether that verdict was was justified or not. Yeah, and Hunter, it's one thing to accept the verdict as difficult as, as much as we may disagree with it, but it's been, been beyond that. There are people, I mean, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, uh, members of Congress have actually lionized Kyle Rittenhouse, kind of made, tried to make a hero of him. Uh, Tucker interviewed him um, on his show Monday night and uh, got 5 million viewers, record number of viewers. Uh, here is Kyle Rittenhouse uh, claiming again this was all about self-defense. This case has nothing to do with race. Um, it never had anything to do with race. It had to do with the right to self-defense. Right. Um, I'm not a racist person. I support the BLM movement. I support peacefully demonstrating. And I believe there needs to be change. I believe there's a lot of prosecutorial misconduct, not just in my case, but in other cases. So, Tucker, for the politics of it, is this is this smart for the Republican Party to choose Kyle Rittenhouse as their new, you know, hero, role model? Well, I mean, first off, I'm glad you played that clip because it was exactly um, the line I was thinking of when you mentioned that interview. And and what I find so shocking there is that, you know, he says, I support the BLM movement. And this yeah. is a guy who showed up at a Black Lives Matter protest and with killed- a gun in a, yeah. in a town, I think even in a state that he didn't live in. He went out of his way right. to show up at yeah. that protest armed. If that, That's an interesting level of support. Um, but right. he's certainly getting report, support, as uh, Elena pointed out, with these um, you know, internship offers, these interviews. He's getting support from the Republican Party. Um, you know, Trump, right after the verdict was announced, was text fundraising to supporters. Um, I just pulled it up saying, uh, all caps, great news for Kyle Rittenhouse. So he clearly, you know, thought it was a good base play. I think others are seeing that as well. Um, what I found so amazing about this meeting between Trump and Rittenhouse at Mar-a-Lago, um, you know, they put out a photo of the president arm in arm with him, and they're literally standing under um, Trump's apparently beloved photo of him and Kim Jong-un. Um, <laughs> so it was really, I think, uh, an interesting illustration of, you know, the priorities 
in the Trump wing of the Republican Party. I mean, you have this man who, you know, whatever you think of the verdict, unquestionably, you know, killed two people and injured another. I mean, it's at the very least a sad incident. Um, And Trump is smiling over this um, Mm. under the the picture of his, you know, dictator pal. I don't know. And I'll just point out too, I mean, Rittenhouse said, this is not about race. This is about self-defense. And whether he realizes it or not, you know, we can it is about race. That's that's the that's a huge part of this entire story. I mean, you're you're coming to a Black Lives Matter protest. You're traveling to this protest, saying that you support the movement, and yet why? When after your arrival there, two people are dead at your hands. I just think that's that's an important thing to note because people, you know, are hearing what he's saying, and and they're again applying this really kind of blanket term of self-defense to a situation that, sure, there's an element of self-defense here, but we absolutely cannot uh, over overstate how big of a role race has played here and how big of a role race has played with this entire movement, particularly among Trump's base and his supporters. Um, this is uh, this is, I think, kind of a, a dog whistle moment where Rittenhouse is, is kind of trying to to skirt away from what's really at the root of a lot of this. Right. By, by his own admission, he went there to like you know, quote unquote, protect local businesses. I mean, this was a guy who was trying to, you know, mm-hmm. support a local strip mall, not necessarily like <laughs> the the protest movement. It, it is, it, it's interesting and almost bizarre to see them, you know, sort of try to ally him with that later on when, when I think, you know, uh, as Maya pointed out, like part of his appeal is that he quite literally fought against that, you know, right. for, for the Republican base. I just want to point one of the aldermen from Kenosha, Wisconsin, by the name of Kennedy, who's an African-American and an army veteran, uh, pointed out that if he had been had done what Kyle Rittenhouse had done, he would not have been arrested. He said his ass would have been lying in the street dead. Um, uh, Just again, getting back to what it was all about. Well, we had a uh, reappointment of the chair of the Fed this week, uh, an endorsement by Trump that went sour in Pennsylvania, and still a lot of uh, back and forth in the Hill about what's going to happen to the Build Back Better bill when it gets to the Senate, I guess where it is now. Uh, All of that uh, for our panel didn't get to that yet. We will after a quick break here on our roundtable with my king, Hunter Walker, and Elena Treen. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the good men and women of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW.org, under the leadership of President Mark Perrone. Uh, next time you're in one of our big retail stores like Nordstrom or Macy's or our big grocery chains like Safeway or Stop and Shop, uh, thank your clerk. Thank the people who are taking care of you. You can bet that they are members of the UFCW serving America every day and our great retail and grocery chains, as well as with um, in the meat and poultry packing plants, preparation plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants across the country. We salute the members of the UFCW, thank them for their great service to America, and especially for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, 
The learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's Reporters Roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod this Wednesday, November 24. Elena Treen joining us from Axios, Hunter Walker, from up the uprising.info and of course Rolling Stone also Maya King from Politico the build back better bill passed the house big signing ceremony it's now in the senate uh Elena uh is the family of medical leave going to stay in the bill will the salt or the state and local tax deductions stay in the bill will the bill pass the senate all great questions, uh, Bill. I think on the first one, I'll try to take them in order. Paid family leave, I just don't see how that's going to make it into the bill. Um, Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, that is, um, mm-hmm. of course, uh, a lot of progressives are taking issue with. Um, he's essentially repeatedly said that he does not want to support that measure through the reconciliation, the budget reconciliation process that they'll use to pass the Build Back Better Act in the in the Senate. And so that basically rules it out of the package because without his vote, of course, the bill yeah. will fail. Um, but there are some efforts. I, I've spoken with Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and, and others about how she's looking at maybe trying to find a way to, to pass that through a separate bipartisan solution um, if it doesn't make it into the package. So it may not be completely dead if it's not in this this larger package of Biden's. Um, as for, and I'm sorry, Bill, what was the second the, question you had? The, the so-called SALT. Oh, SALT, yes. Um, I think from my, and, and my and Hunter, if you have different reporting, please let me know. But from my conversations, it seems like there will be some level of salt in the package. It's just a question of how much. <laughs> of course, this is something that um, a lot of the House centrists, particularly from New Jersey and New York, the places that, of course, um, will benefit from this provision, are really pushing for. And they've said, no salt, no deal. That's something that Josh Gottheimer, Tom Sozzi, um have been saying. And so um, from my understanding and, and my conversations with people in the Senate as well, um, they're okay keeping it in there. I think, again, the question just is is how big that provision vision will be yeah. and how much funding uh, will come from that. Just and then like whether your, it will pass. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I just got, I said, just like our diet, a little bit of salt, but not too much, I guess. Yes. Is what the, All what in the, moderation, <laughs> right? Um, and then as for whether it'll pass the Senate, we'll see. I mean, Chuck Schumer has said that he wants it to pass before the end of the year. That's very ambitious, um, despite the ongoing negotiations for the past several months. And um, again, Senator Joe Manchin is really the key here. He's he's shown that he's really uncomfortable with having this massive spending package when we've seen inflation mm-hmm. at the levels that they are. Um, and, you know, how a lot of there's been so much spending in other areas already um, this year through other priorities. And so if he doesn't support it again, it, it won't pass. And so really all attention is on him and some of the other key Senators like Kirsten Cinema like on whether Sinema. they'll they'll go for it. Well, history was made uh, actually at the end of last week, uh, Maya, with uh, Kevin McCarthy, Republican leader, getting up and talking and talking and talking and talking longer than anybody ever had on the floor of the House in recorded memory. Uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki had uh, some choice words about uh, McCarthy's big show. Well, Kevin McCarthy uh, said a lot of words, a lot of words. I just want to emphasize that uh, over the course of eight and a half hours. Um, but in eight and a half hours, what he did not talk about was cutting the cost of child care, cutting the cost of elder care, what we were going to do around the country to bring more women into the workforce, to protect our climate. That, in our view, tells you all you need to know about Kevin McCarthy's agenda and what he supports. <laughs> so, Maya, what did McCarthy uh, achieve with this marathon? <laughs> I think he actually achieved a couple of wins for both parties. And this is definitely not a new take, though it might not be. Uh, I don't. I, this is just what I took away from it. You know, Republicans, yeah. of course, can high five him and say, yes, thank you for getting in the way of the passage of a bill that we hate and talking about it, even if you have to ramble. 
uh, Democrats, of course, have have tons of talking points to say, like, this is why Republicans are enemies of progress. And I think uh, Dave Weigel pointed this out. Saturday Night Live gets a great cold open. Um, I'm not sure if they did that this past Saturday, but you know, it kind of gives everyone something to talk about and it gives everyone uh, a, a fun talking point because truly, I mean, it is kind of outrageous, right? An eight and a half hour speech on the floor kind of going on and on and on about, I'm, I'm not quite sure. But again, this also kind of sums up politics at this moment in many ways is that each party is trying to do what it can to deliver for its base. And sometimes that means passing legislation and sometimes that means uh, marathon speeches on the floor about anything. Uh, Tucker, does this give the Democrats the uh, ammunition they need to go out and try to, uh, you know, turn things around in terms of uh, public support? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the ma- a major question for this is, you know, I, I think not everything will end up being in there, but we will ultimately see um, some version of this pass. Yeah, I and think you're right. The, yeah, and given the delay... Um, and also given, you know, some of the narrative and political issues that Biden has experienced so far, will this package be enough of a win? Will it be enough for Democrats um, to message in the midterms and going forward? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, right now, um, despite, I think, some bluster from leadership, um, Democrats I talk to really are nervous about the midterms. Um, and, and of course, you know, that, that bleeds right into nervousness for 2024. Um, I, you know, I think Biden is going to have to either really sell this well once it passes or come up with something else. Uh, and I think it's interesting to see also that, you know, there was an article coming out, uh, recently that the white house is behind, uh, both Trump and Obama in terms of, um, interviews, uh, direct interviews mm-hmm. with the president, mm-hmm. um, and they're not putting Biden out there a lot, uh, whether that's you know nervousness about his uh, infamous propensity for gaffes or something else. Uh, it just you know raises a lot of questions about how much will be in the Biden agenda, who will be selling it, and how that will play out. Right. Uh, Biden did take a couple of steps this week to um, uh, again, I think, improve uh, the image of the administration in terms of addressing the economy, even though the economy seems to be coming along pretty well, but there's still a lot of certain um, uh, uncertainty about it, let's say. Uh, The first was reappointing Jerome Powell as the chairman of the Fed. Uh, Elena, I guess the the easy way out, the soft, the easy choice for for, uh, Biden, right? And uh, then appointing um, Lael Baird, I think that's how you pronounce her name, uh, as the Brain, num- Laryl Brainard, as, yes, Brainard, right? As the as the number two. Yes, I mean, I, I think that's that's the right characterization. It was a bit of a safe choice and a continuity, um, of course, for Powell. Um, I mean, a lot of progressives won't be happy with it, aren't happy with it. Elizabeth Warren is one of them. Um, but for the most part, and from just my conversations, I've interviewed a lot of. Um, Democrats in Congress over the past several weeks about who they would think would be the best choice. And a lot of them did say they'd be happy with Powell, particularly um, more centrist Democrats like John Tester, um, who, who think that having, you know, stability right now at the Fed and not having um, a big change would, would be the right move forward. And, And one of the things that I, you know, I think was driving the president's choice here was Lil Brainerd is a bit of um, a more political choice. And, and I think some folks were worried about, you know, how, what, you know, the idea that it, it might, a choice like her might be politicizing the Fed. Um, of course, that's up to interpretation. A lot of progressives would say, no, that that's, that's mm-hmm. not what we're looking for or what she would do. But that was something that I think um, that we're told contributed to his decision. And so, um, yeah, he's going to get another four year term at the, at the Fed. Right. But but my the president also did something that former presidents in terms of rising gas prices have always declined to do, saying it's not a national emergency. Uh, he said he's going to tap the strategic oil reserve. Yeah. You know, I interpret that kind of as a, 
a sign that the White House recognizes that public opinion towards this administration is is really dipping, borderline mm-hmm. tanking. I mean, from a national politics perspective, this is all about 2022. But even before then, nobody wants to be hurting around the holiday season, and especially when it when it amounts to to money, gas prices, price of travel, price of groceries. These are things that Republicans can directly point to and say, "This is what this administration has done for you." And these are things that the Democrats, I think, even now have struggled to really articulate. Voters don't really care about the mechanics of the market. But what they do care about is the fact that, you know, turkeys are like 14% higher than they, or more expensive <laughs> right. than they were last year. Like these are the these are the direct uh, lines, I think, that, <laughs> that this White House is trying to at least strike a chord with. And so the least that they can do, at least if I could interpret their calculus is do what they can to lower gas prices, because that's, you know, been widely looked at at the, the, the easiest indicator of, of, of price levels and of inflation. Um, though, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, a good point, I think, that, that Ed O'Keefe pointed out yesterday, which is that the 50 million barrels of, of oil mm-hmm. or of gas, that amounts to about three days uh, of, of, of cheaper gas for Americans when you factor in kind of daily average intake. So, you know, whether or not this has a huge difference is, is unclear, though. It could give some people reason to, to relax both in this administration and just on the ground um, over the Thanksgiving weekend. Hunter, you know, I've been reporting on this and talking about this since I first started in television in Los Angeles in 1980. There's no issue that drives Americans to panic quicker than higher gas prices, right? It's amazing to me. Yeah. And, you know, when we see these increasing reports of, you know, inflation and economic anxiety, um, a lot of the discourse, I think, in, you know, political Twitter has been focused on like, you know, disputing individual points, uh, particularly, you know, people who are quoted make. We saw this whole like controversy over a CNN interview where, um, you know, a a large family who'd adopted some kids was, was complaining somewhat inaccurately uh, about milk prices. And, you know, the bottom line is the sentiment in the public is what matters here. And people seem to be clearly anxious. There clearly are a little, you know, certain prices going up. Um, We just went through this big economic shock of COVID. And I think, you know, Biden as someone who set the narrative of his administration up to be, you know, I'm sort of the guy who grabbed the reins of COVID and confronted it, right. needs to show some very clear results of that. Uh, and, you know, due to this anti-vax and other issues, like like COVID's not totally gone. So if if the economic if the economy is not back, then 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 what are we getting here? Right. Uh, so just before we break, I, I just have to ask each of you, um, Donald Trump is still out there. He's still active, of course. He's still uh, uh, complaining about having the election stolen away from him and Joe Biden's not a legitimate president, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and he gave an interview this week where I thought he sort of uh, summed up maybe what the Trump creed is all about. Um, here's the, the former president. If you can follow what he's saying and what he means. Our country is based on the Constitution. And, you know, our country is not living up to the Constitution right now with the kind of things you see. It's uh, They're trying to subvert it. And more so now than anybody would ever believe. Bernie Sanders is saying, I can't believe they're doing this. This is far more than what they're doing to our country is perhaps, you know, they talk socialism. This is communism in so many ways. Uh, there's no freedom of the press. The press is totally corrupt. The press and them are the same. There's no freedom of the press. That's how communism starts. <laughs> Hunter, uh, can you translate that for us? You know, it's very interesting. I, I've often <laughs> thought this about Trump, and I actually was thinking it last night, um, rereading his remarks um, from the Ellipse on January 6th. Um, so often, you know, what he's saying is sort of more about conveying a feeling or an emotion. And when you break it down um, on a grammatical level, <laughs> it just doesn't really hold up. Um, and I think that is definitely one of those word salad moments. And, and you know, the only thing you really leave with if, if you try to follow it is that, you know, he's basically painting the Democrats as, you know, authoritarian communists. Um, 
you know, that's pretty interesting for a guy who has a picture of Kim Jong-un on display in his office. <laughs> yeah, and Elena, he talks about people subverting the Constitution. I mean, I, one could make the argument that if anybody is trying to subvert the Constitution uh, and has been for the last two years, it's Donald Trump himself. Uh, I totally agree with you, Bill, um, especially after what we saw following the, the 2020 election and his unwillingness to transfer power to, to Joe Biden. Um, I mean, it's just, it's something we've seen this over and over and over again with Trump, um, you know, falsely saying things and knowing that his supporters and particularly his base, which is so incredibly loyal to him, will believe it. Um, even though it's just totally, you know, not factual, like saying that that this is communism in the country and there's no freedom of the press, obviously all things that are not true and falsities. And I agree with you. I mean, saying that we're seeing the constitution be undermined when that's exactly what happened. Um, and of course, culminated with, with January 6th um, after, you know, his continued unwillingness to, to accept the election results um, is definitely hypocritical. Uh, and Maya, one little setback this week, Sean Parnell, the president, former president, rushed uh, to endorse him very, very early in the Republican primary for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. Uh, Parnell, uh, uh, a judge, took custody of his children away from Parnell this week, at which point Parnell dropped out of the race, uh, a man who'd been charged in this divorce, divorce settlement with uh, uh, cruelty and sexual abuse and sexual harass of his wife. Um, not a good moment for Donald Trump. And he's also criticized because he supported Herschel Walker in Georgia uh, for Senate, who has also been charged with uh, assault, a physical assault against his wife, holding a gun to her head at one point during an argument in their home. Um, what's to say about Trump's political clout and maybe um, the vetting process in the Trump world. Yeah, it's not great. Uh, perhaps it says more though about Trump's like moral compass. I mean, he's known about, uh, we've known about this, this history with Walker for a while and the details coming out of the Parnell case are just absolutely, I mean, frankly, just, just, I mean, disgusting. It's, it's really, really unfortunate to hear what he's put, uh, his, his, his ex-wife through and also exposed his children to. And that's, Part of the reason why he had to drop out because there's a lot that has to there's a lot that now will impact his his own public image. Um, but one thing I also want to point out here too is that this is not just Trump uh, who's endorsed these folks. I yeah. mean, Parnell had had the endorsements from top party brass, and so mm -hmm. does Walker. Now you see people uh, starting to to coalesce behind Walker. He is very much the the nominee apparent. Um, so, you know, with Parnell, it, it was kind of like a series of unfortunate events with how this news rolled out very quickly. You had all these sordid details are a lot more recent than the Walker case. And I think that was kind of a, a, the, the thing that really took him out very quickly. We'll see what happens with Walker. But, uh, you know, I think that it's clear that this, this former president and many members of his party are, are a lot more willing to look past anybody's personal history or or even what they might have done or not done to hurt other people if it means they can still win atop the ticket and I think really if you uh, I mean my colleagues reporting about the Parnell case and talking about sort of some of the things that Trump has said about him it was less about uh, the case with his children and his wife and more about you know why isn't this guy doing so well why is he tanking why is he why is he making me look bad <laughs> and that says everything that you need to know uh, about about this this about trump's politics and and how uh i guess his own his own morality and moral compass kind of informs those things all right well a short week so far but still lots of news to talk about and thank you panelists for uh covering it very well and completely here on the bill press pod um thanks to maya king hunter walker and uh, elena Tr elena treen but before we let you go uh we always like to end with um everybody's favorite story of the week the one story during the week that uh, caused you to uh, just slow down and say holy mackerel <laughs> laugh or cry or whatever uh, maya you want to start us off what what caught your attention Sure. I'm going to plug um, a Politico magazine feature from, <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> from my colleague, Derek Robertson, who went to a Let's Go Brandon Fest 
uh, which oh god yes <laughs> yeah I, I i i hate to bring that back here but i thought it was such a good story because you hear you know let's go brandon has been the new rallying cry of, of trump's base and yet he went to this festival this and you couldn't even really call it a rally because there were about a hundred people there and everybody was extremely as he describes it mild people were scared <laughs> to actually say what the f me- word because we know what what Let's Go Brandon really is a stand-in for. And then when somebody finally did, he's got this great description of of kind of a chill going through the crowd and people just feeling really awkward and, and not sure exactly how to react. And then, you know, 50 feet away, you've got like two dozen children playing on a playground, absolutely oblivious to what their relatives, probably their parents, are even at this festival yeah. to do and, and to stand for. And I think it's just great. It captures a new element of the base. I know for me, I have to sometimes step out of, of my, step away from my own biases about the Trump base, assuming that they are this kind of raucous, um, you know, over the top yelling, screaming crowd. When in fact, they also are people who like really don't like Joe Biden and kind of want to stand up for it, but don't want to go so far as to actually say F Joe Biden. And so let's go. Brandon kind of gives them a chance to, I don't know, be able to <laughs> be able to say that without saying it. Um, and so it was just really a really good look at, at kind of uh, the, the paradox here of, of something wow. that's really animated a lot of people, but it's kind of boring in practice. Uh, by the way, I do. I just want to jump in because I don't think it's true that everybody understands what Let's Go Brandon stands for. A very good friend of mine this week said, what's that all about? And I think, uh, correct me, panelists, if I'm wrong, but this was a TV reporter giving an interview and there was a crowd in the background of Trump Trumpers shouting as she did this interview, fuck Joe Biden, fuck Joe Biden. Uh, the TV interviewer or the, the journalist thought they were shouting, let's go, Brandon, because she was interviewing right, a sports guy named Brandon or something. A NASCAR driver. NASCAR driver, sorry. Yeah, named Brandon. She thought they were shouting, let's go, Brandon. They were shouting, fuck Joe Biden. Uh, and so let's go, Brandon has become the, um, what's what's the right word? The alternative, right, for fuck Joe Biden. But when, I see, little, nod. <laughs> when yes. I see little kids carrying signs, let's go, Brandon, I mean, come on. Um, and yeah, that was a good story. I enjoyed that story too. Um, Hunter, what caught your attention? So yesterday there was this incredible announcement from the Pentagon, um, that they were announcing a new, uh, UFO task force. Basically. Um, the actual announcement was like loaded down with a million, um, <laughs> acronyms. I think that the technical way they said this was, um, the deputy secretary directed the director of national intelligence to establish within the office of USD INS, the airborne object identification and management synchronization, syn- synchronization group, which will be known as AOI MSG. Um, <laughs> and, and it will be led by the AOI MEXEC. So, but, but, but the real thing is that this will be investigating UFOs. And they have this they, great statement. They said the Department of Defense takes reports of incursions by any airborne object, identified or unidentified, very seriously and investigates each one. But, um, so, you know, that's, that's also a great admission of like the extent to which the Pentagon has already been investigating UFOs. I but, will say I was super hyped for the report that like came out earlier this year. Yeah, it's supposed to be like the big thing. And they don't have that much, but they're clearly they're clearly was, taking it seriously. But they identified three or four, as I recall, instances where they could not they did not know what this thing was, right? They, yeah, but I that, wanted that you know, I wanted like the Roswell body. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like that report was hyped. But hopefully this task force will be better. You know, we've all oh. got the grainy footage of triangles and confused pilots. Yeah. It's it's interesting right. stuff, but like I want to see the what, what do they get? The the oh reptilians not the rep- no reticulants what Mulder <laughs> called the reticulants I- i'm waiting for them <laughs> so am i i gotta tell you so are we all right uh so elena if the q people can wait for jfk jr <laughs> i can i can you know await the arrival of the reticulants i think there may be just as much a chance maybe more of a chance on the ufos uh elena how about you so mine's not very political but um That's one thing that just caught my attention and I, That's I it. said wow too was um the Dollar Tree is now 
upping oh. its price to 125. Oh no. So no longer the dollar store and it's oh. um you know it's been selling products for at $1 for 35 years. It was oh. um I believe the last, you know, true dollar store to keep mm. prices at $1, but now it's raising the price to 125. They say that that's the uh new it's a permanent decision and and they claim it's not a reaction to short-term or transitory market conditions, but um, I think it's pretty clear that this comes at a time when yes. the economy's, you know, I mean, businesses oh. like the Dollar Tree have really been struggling. So sad though. I used to go to the Dollar Tree all the time and love that it was just one dollar. I now have to find quarters to bring along with me. So here that's it is. my story. <laughs> the proof of rampant inflation. There it is. No, no better, no better proof of that. Thank you. Well, my favorite story I have to tell you comes from the uh, thanks to the Washington Post. I couldn't believe the story. We all know we can and most of us do buy almost anything online. It turns out. Uh, as the Washington Post reports, you can even buy or rent an assassin online. Uh, there was a guy back in 2005 in California. His name is Bob Inman, in Innes. And as a joke, he created a website called rentahitman.com. Uh, he didn't pay any attention to it for a while. I put it up there. And then he checked it after a couple of years and, oh, my God, he had um, dozens and dozens of inquiries about wow. renting this hitman. Uh, he now gets about eight to ten hits a month. And since 2005, over 700 people have contacted him about uh, hiring a hitman to take care of someone that they wanted to uh, knock off. Uh, four, 400 of them have actually filled out what he calls a service request form which includes giving their name, their email, their address, the name of the person that they want to uh, get knocked off, and why they want to get them knocked off. And, of course, Mr. Innes does the right thing. He turns all of these over to law enforcement uh, who take it from there. Can you believe it? 700 wow. people have contacted him. And, by the way, uh, in case you're interested, it is rentahitman.com. Uh, it requires a $200 deposit, and the fee is $5,000 uh, once the mission is accomplished, which hopefully it never will be. But isn't that amazing that people actually would put themselves out there and admit they want to do that? There you go. I don't know what that says about the state of affairs in America today, <laughs> but I found it stunning. And uh, that's it for today's roundtable. Man, what a great job. Thank you, Mike King from Politico. Thank you, Hunter Walker, theuprising.info. And thank you, Elena Treen. Great to have you here, Elena Treen from Axios. And thank all of you for listening today. Only one thing to do now is have a great, great Thanksgiving with your family and your loved ones. And then uh, have a great weekend. And come back and see us next Tuesday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.